Hello and welcome to WMQ&A, the Comics XF interview podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Lazar. Uh, and this week's guest has a story in Ahoy Comics Project Cryptid and recently wrote the Sinestro backups in DC's Night Terror's Green Lantern, among plenty of other stuff, Alex Segura. Welcome, Alex. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited to chat. So, Alex, what are some of the first comics you remember reading? Wow, great question. Um, my first comic was a Betty and Veronica Double Digest. Uh, I think it was issue 13 or 14. It had a Dan DiCarlo cover of the girls dancing in a nightclub with Archie and Reggie, or nightclub or whatever, high school dance, I guess. Uh, it looked like a nightclub. Um, and my earliest, I guess, superhero comics were Uncanny X-Men 237, which I joke with friends is probably the least welcoming issue of x-men in that it's like part two of the genosha the first genosha storyline storyline chris claremont rick leonardi but it's that spotlight issue with wolverine and rogue basically kind of um doing some espionage except it's not rogue it's carol danvers controlling rogue's body right um, it's the outback era x-men heading to genosha so i had no idea what was going on and i loved it <laughs> and i was hooked and um <laughs> I think another early one was a Brave and the Bold issue um, that featured Batman and Aquaman uh, fighting an undersea army of criminals. And another one off the top of my head was a Ralph Macchio issue of Avengers picking up right after the end of the classic Stern Busema run on Avengers. Uh, and it was the Metal Men arc, you know, with the you know the uh, I'm blanking a giant robot on the cover and Black Knight and Namor and yeah it was cool i think you're, yeah you, you know which one i talked about yeah i'm trying to remember was it red ronin i don't think it was red. it's not Ugh. red ronin and it's not uh molten man it's um it's the asgardian robot oh, oh the destroyer uh, destroyer yeah, destroyer yeah there you go but um i read that i think it was like fourth grade elementary school in my one of my class in my class and i just it was happened was lying around and i was like what is this and so to kind of defy the conceit that you have to ha make every issue super welcoming to new readers, both of those issues were completely not welcoming to new readers, and I was still reeled in pretty easily. And Archie was a great doorway to comics because it taught you the basics of the medium and also was very sitcomish in its story, you know, as opposed to being continuity loaded with continuity or it was just very episodic. And, you know, the characters were the characters and there was very little stuff that flowed from one episode to the next, if anything. So that was a great um, kind of gateway drug to comics. And then the super, those superhero issues just reeled me in immediately. Yeah. I think especially by the time you had picked up X-Men. Chris Claremont was long over Jim Shooter's uh, every every comic is someone's first edict. Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely. That was a lot. Of, I mean, they had just died in um, in Dallas and were living in Australia. And if you mm -hmm. had not read the last 20 or so issues, you were pretty lost. But it was thrilling. I mean, Silvestri and Leonardi on, on art and, you know, Claremont weaving some of his best stories. So it was a lot of fun, I thought. Yeah, I mean, I learned in retrospect that one issue was not. I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> and at that point, Claremont is priming the pump too for Inferno, which is where like oh, yeah. thirty different plots come to a head. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, when you realize that Gen there's a Genosha story, and then Inferno picks up immediately after, like he was on his A game at that point. 
Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. But uh, we are recording this on Labor Day. How was your summer? It's been good. It's been busy. I just got back from San Diego. I was at BoucherCon, which is a very big mystery author convention. So that was a lot of fun. Um, Just hung out with my kids today. We've done some traveling. And um, yeah, I went to Terrificon the week, you know, last month, a couple months ago, which was a great show in Connecticut. Um, Yeah, so it's been a lot of kind of just churning away at work, but also traveling and seeing colleagues and readers, which is really a blast just seeing people that have engaged with your work and we're excited to read it. So it's funny when I was, I was reading about you at BoucherCon, I, there was a part of my head of like, mm, all right, how do we pronounce this? <laughs> I thought for a second, it might be Boucher con, but that's not yeah. a mystery writers convention. That's a tribute are, to the water boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you are not alone in wondering how to pronounce it, but, um, yeah, and uh, even even authors at the convention sometimes ask, like, is it ButcherCon? But it's named after Anthony Boucher, a renowned crime fiction critic um, who reviewed mysteries for the New York Times for for years and years and years. And um, yeah, so it's a fan run convention. It's a, it's really great in that it's it's all volunteer work, and um, you know, it's a real chance to connect. It's small; it's like seventeen hundred people, so it's very different from like New York comic con or San Diego con, which is like a swarm of people or even like Terrificon, which seemed like very crowded and busy. Uh, so, yeah. Now, how many murders did you all collectively solve that weekend? I collected, I solved zero, but I'm hoping that my colleagues and, and talented fellow authors were much better at it. But um, yeah. Now, now mystery writers and I'm, I'm incorporating, you know, uh, tv books you know across media here uh mm-hmm. you know when you all get together do you compare let's say and i'm going to use a very you know sort of plebeian example but like columbo and charlie kell from poker face the way basketball folk compare uh mj and lebron you know we do yeah i think i think there's always debates about like who the best private eye is like is it lou archer is it raymond chandler is it matt scudder is it my pip fernandez like you know, uh, that's almost how, how you compare your bon- bona fides, like, or bona fides or whatever, however it's pronounced. <laughs> that's one of those words when you say it out loud, you're like, I've never really said this out loud. But um, it's how you kind of compare your cred, you know, which books you've read and who your pre- preferences are and, and why they're your favorites. But yeah, there's a lot of that. All right, Matt, curveball question to you. Who Who is in your uh, hard-boiled PI deathmatch? You can't go wrong with Sam Spade. I mean, there's yeah. a classic right sure. there. Uh huh. Um, so much of the like more hard boiled stuff I read is stuff like uh, Parker, who isn't a PI, but who's yeah, like, I think Chandler's the guy. I mean, uh, Marlo's got to be up there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, um, Gutter is great. I mean, the Lawrence Larry Block books. Um, uh, he's not as hard boiled, but I uh, saw stuff for Spencer. Thanks yeah, to my, my dad. Just, yeah. Uh, and as a complete curveball and one that just makes me chuckle, uh, famous or genre writer Kevin J. Anderson has Dan Shamble, the zombie PI, who oh, yeah. I get a, a chuckle out of those pun laden books. They're just, just oh. You know, Harry Bosch is not a PI for most of his books, but there is one novel or two where he's off the cop. You know, he's no longer a cop or he's retired and he handles it on his own. So you can throw in Bosch if you really want to. I love Tess Monahan as well. And V.I. Warshawski. 
Yes, yes. And the the Dennis Lehane series, the uh, Pat and Angie novels, Kenzie and Gennaro are also great. And Harry Dresden. Um, and Nick Stefanos is also another favorite. So we could be at this all night, actually. Oh, yeah, <laughs> no doubt. Uh, it's a good list. It's a good list. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you have a story in Ahoy Comics Project Cryptid Anthology, which yeah. is dedicated to uh, mythological creatures, great and small. Uh, your story is in issue number two. It's called Diana Montalvan and the Ivory Build Woodpecker. Yeah. Now, uh, for those who don't know, uh, according to Dr. Wikipedia, the Ivory Build Woodpecker is a possibly extinct woodpecker that is native yeah. to the bottomland hardwood forests and temperate coniferous forests of the southern U.S. and Cuba. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to the uh, the International Union for Conservation of Nature, they are critically endangered, and the American Birding Association lists them as definitely or probably extinct. So first, uh, how did you get involved with this project? So Sarah Litt, who is an editor who does some work at Ahoy and is editing this book and is an old friend of mine and reached out and asked, I'm putting, the, you know, basically said, you know, I'm putting together this series and would love to have you involved. And I immediately said, yes, I love Ahoy's books. I'm friends with Tom Payer and Stuart Moore and Jamal Igel and a lot of the people who've worked there. Um, so it felt like a great opportunity and it's, it felt very similar to a lot of kind of the fiction or the prose anthologies I've been involved in where you get a theme and are asked to contribute a short story and, and go from there, which I find very freeing because you get to play with ideas that maybe you had in your back pocket that didn't fill out a full comic book pitch or novel, but were cool enough that you want to play with them. Um, and I had actually written a Diana Montalban story for an anthology, a prose anthology that um, Robert Greenberger, a novelist and former editor at DC and Marvel put together called Thrilling uh, Thrilling Adventure Tales, or um, I'm blanking out, maybe I'm screwing up the name, but um, it had stories from people like Peter David and and, uh, and um, Keith DeCandido and a bunch of acclaimed novelists. And I had a Diana story in that book and I thought, okay, well, I have this really cool, like supernatural PI type character. I'd love to see her translated into comics. So I, I just came up with another story that kind of fit the theme and continued the series. So if you read that story and liked it um, in the anthology and wanted to hear read more Diana stories, this, this was a perfect follow-up, I thought. And it's beautifully drawn by Steve Bryant, um, who's an old friend, and we've wanted to collaborate. And so when... Sarah said yes to the pitch. Um, I reached out to Steve and said, do you want to draw it? And thankfully, Sarah was okay with me doing that. (laughs) So uh, how did we land on the Ivory Bill Woodpecker? And also, are we talking about the American or the Cuban variety? Well, you find out very quickly that we're talking about the Cuban variety, which is extinct, you know, theoretically. And um, the, the the springboard of the story, which is brief, it's about 11 pages long, so I don't want to give away too much, is that Diana is approached by an old flame, uh, this bird expert or an academic who knows a lot about birds and uh, who has apparently captured this bird that shouldn't exist. And... Um, Diana learns that there's more to this bird than she first thought. And there might be some malicious powers swirling around this bird that should not exist. And she's she's asked by her friend to track down the bird that he thought he brought back, but somehow lost and is worried has some kind of demonic powers tied to its existence. And Diana's curiosity is her one weakness and her Achilles heel, and she can't say no. So she finds herself tracking down this bird 
and suddenly is at risk of you know coming to harm because of her interest in this bird and the value of the bird um you know every every good pi whether they admit to being a pi or not is curious and is willing to stick their nose into troubling situations and she does that and finds herself at the wrong end of a bird's beak uh, now, have you gotten to read any of the other uh, Project Cryptid stories? I have. I read Alyssa Quitney's story, which I share space with, and it's really fantastic and beautiful. And um, I also got to contribute to the serialized prose story that Grant Morrison is putting is spearheading. And their initial story was so fascinating, and we all got to kind of pick off, up off that. And um, that was a lot of fun. Never in my wildest dreams, as a huge fan of Grant and their work, have I, uh, did I ever think I'd share space with them in a story, in an anthology, or even like a serialized anthology like this? So it was really a blast. Uh, you, uh, so speaking of, of that, uh, which I believe is called, yeah, Partially Naked Came the Corpse. Yes. Uh, you know, make, making it clear right on the tin that we are playing a game of exquisite corpse. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you are our ninth in the order. Uh, of all the folks participating uh, between Audrey Ryer and uh, actually last week's podcast guest, Torin Grunbeck. But what yeah. are the advantages and disadvantages of of your position in the lineup as, as a storyteller? Um, I think, you know, I don't think there are any disadvantages. I've never played in this kind of story. I've played in shared universe anthologies, prose anthologies, and comics, I think comics anthologies. Um, but never have I played in an anthology where you're basically picking up the same thread. Um, what I found interesting was that everyone really brought their voice into the story. Have, I've read all everything that came before me. Uh, I haven't read the stuff that came after, but you know, I think I benefited from being both a writer and an editor. So part of my desire was to kind of have my voice in there as this hard-boiled kind of noir PI writer, but also as an editor trying to kind of steer things back before the end to some logical conclusion, because everyone did really throw hand grenades into the story and to say, this is what I want to do. And I'm going to, you know, veer things off. And I did too, to some degree. Um, but I also think I, I was able to pull things back into some semblance of a narrative, not that the others weren't narrative narratively tied together, but you know, you want to eventually feel like you're getting some kind of resolution. And so hopefully that's what people got from my piece, but also, had a fun ride. It's been a. It's a. It was a blast to read them. Getting back to the uh, the, the the cryptid matter, Matt. What is your favorite cryptid? Got a soft spot for Mothman. I yeah. think there's something very cool about the the prophetic. You're not quite sure if he is, you know, a a harbinger of doom or trying to warn you about incoming doom like does he bring it or is he like hey you know get off the bridge before also after having just seen the film about him i'm a big fan of the of jeff the talking mongoose oh nice from, uh english the, the turn of the century the turn of the 20th century because you have to point that out now uh yeah. english yeah <laughs> english countryside talking mongoose tale he's a fun guy okay all right I, I i just learned something so so talk talking mongoose origins date to the early 19th century or excuse me early 20th century his name is jeff yep with a g <laughs> yeah g off. okay all right now i understand <laughs> <That's all clear. laughs> 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a real sucker for stories and characters and ideas that blur the lines between reality and the supernatural. So I find cryptids really fascinating. And um, I wanted to play with a cryptid that was at least somewhat connected to Cuba, where my parents are from, or Miami, South Florida, where I'm from. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was neat to create a, you know, play with a cryptid that's up from that area, but isn't, you know, like, oh, the chupacabra or something much more obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, speaking of obvious, my, my favorite is the Yeti, uh, which yeah. I, I actually I read uh, Mark Russell's story in issue number one. Uh, but uh, I, I think that's because my favorite ride at Disney is Expedition Everest, which is a Yeti themed uh, ride where like they have like an animatronic Yeti actually or, uh, come and like tear up the track and send you downhill. It's fun. Anyway, uh, cool, but because. Yeah. <laughs> but because uh we're we're based in jersey we're also a very pro jersey devil uh podcast yeah, that's a good one uh you also just wrapped a uh two issue backup story in night terrors green lantern featuring sinestro how did that assignment come up yeah that was really fun paul kaminsky the editor of green lantern uh who i've worked with on a couple stories at dc i wrote a superman story in the kal-el return special where superman returns and, and interacts with the justice league and i also wrote a question story for lazarus planet you know um legends reborn about um you know spotlighting renee montoya's reaction to all the Le- lazarus planet hijinks uh the latter with clayton henry who's an amazing artist um and this yeah so paul reached out and said you know we're do, we're participating in this big night terrors event he gave me the the high concept stuff and i immediately said yes i love sinestro i'm a big fan of green lantern like so many others but also particularly of you know robert benditi's run and jeff johns's run and and just the lore of green lantern and and how sinestro has been elevated as you know this magnificent villain but also this anti-hero in many ways not just a yellow lantern but a former hero grappling with that transition from hero to villain. And um, it was an opportunity to not only play into what Jeremy's doing as the Green Lantern writer, um, but also to look back at Sinestro's life and give him an opportunity to be haunted by his past mistakes and, and see that fork in the road. Like, am I a hero? Am I a villain? Can I still become a hero if I want to, or, or am I cursed to becoming a villain because of all these terrible things I've already done um, as the leader of the Sinestro Corps and, and, and his, you know, we, te- we touch on the stuff that happened, um, you know, recently with him, but in dark crisis, but not just, not just that and, and give him an opportunity to grab, to be weighed down by everything that's happened to him and, and see, see the consequences of his actions, which is a pretty heady stuff, but also not feel like a, Hey, Sinestro, this is your life type story. How much coordination was there with the greater Green Lantern ongoing? Was it, okay, this is where he's at the beginning and we kind of need him to be here for what's going next or was it just you know don't turn him blue and send him off to be a gardener with nort and just just yeah. go i mean i think with any work but for matt hire, i want to read that yeah i mean i'm kind of intrigued now but i think with any work for hire or, or shared universe stuff you're gonna you have to do some service to the the communal story um like star you know i've worked in star wars i've done marvel stuff and disney stuff but um it was still very liberating in that i hopped on the phone with paul and jeremy and we talked about it and 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 her i, I got to find out what the bigger picture was 
but I also got to add my voice and 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 evoke the kind of story I wanted to tell. It's a very character driven piece, but it's also I got to play in the horror space, which I always love and I'm I'm a fan of, um, which was fun. But you know, my first thought and the first thing I said to Paul and to, and to Jeremy was like, I want to serve your story. I want to be I want to be the utility infielder that comes in and and does the work and helps helps push things along. But I also would love to be able to use my voice and, and tell a story that I want to tell. So that was, that was, they were very open to that. And I also felt really proud that I, you know, the, the crossovers I hated as a reader were always the ones that just felt like they were mandating things onto the books you were reading as a fan. Um, so I wanted to at, be additive to the crossover and feel like the story counts and it's part of this crossover, but it's also pushing the, the narrative forward of Green Lantern, people that were reading Green Lantern already. Um, and I think everyone was appreciative of that, hopefully. And uh, the art is by Mario Fox Fochilo, who did a fantastic job, who I'd never had the chance to work for work with, but he really turned up the kind of bonkers elements of the story and, and gave it a Lynchian vibe that I wasn't expecting, which was a lot of fun to see as the pages came in. Nice, very nice. You know, Matt, you you mentioned Nort. You you did you see the 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 DC's summer anthology? What it was called? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was fun. Uh, Nort's illustrated swimsuit special. That's incredible. Yep. <laughs> I I don't know who in DC editorial gets the credit for that, but uh, gold gold Remember stars. Did. Yeah, five stars for that. <laughs> oh man. Okay. So so Alex, what uh, what color? ring would you wear on the uh, lantern spectrum you know i think i would be a green lantern or a blue lantern that's probably where i'd land i'm a pretty laid-back person but I, I think i'm also you know very driven and focused and uh so yeah i would say that's where i land i definitely am not driven by fear so i don't or, or i am not a i don't dish out fear so i don't think i'd be a yellow lantern and i'm not an angry guy so i would not be a red lantern I'd be, the, I'd be one of the fun red lanterns okay yeah like like a like a deck star type <laughs> yeah with deck yeah. star not an orange lantern if there were more than larfleas yeah <laughs> although that's the whole point isn't it yeah that's kind of the idea but i guess if you wanted to be the plus one when larfleas is plus one maybe you could be yeah indigo the the, oh, the compassion oh, yeah the compassion ones though i think my drive to yeah yeah because the the, the 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 violet lanterns the star sapphires there's always something a little off about them because it's like yeah yes it, it, it's love but it's it's a creepy sort of possessive love that i'm yeah not all about and the the blue lanterns would be great, but they're just a little more mellow than I, I'm not quite that mellow. Not that chill. Yeah, <laughs> I like the indigo lanterns. That's a good call. Yeah, I'll add that belatedly to my list. There you yeah. Go. <laughs> so uh, you wrote a novel that was published earlier this year that teamed up uh, the spider characters Aranya and and Spider Man 2099. Yeah. What are the challenges uh, and advantages of writing a novel featuring comics characters versus, you know, had the project been, say, an OGN or like a five issue limited series? That's a great question. I mean, I think for me, it was a thrill being such a longtime fan of Miguel O'Hara. I mean, uh, it was I remember picking up 
or getting that first issue of Spidey 2099 and just being so fascinated seeing another Latinx, seeing a Latinx Spider-Man, which is something I never thought would exist and um, loving Aranya as a, as a reader as well. So it was fun to pair up two characters that I thought were obvious, um, you know, team up potential, but hadn't really played together in, in, you know, outside of bigger, like mega spider events and tangentially, but um. You know, um, the idea of writing novels about comics characters is not something that was foreign to me as a reader, but I think you have to be mindful of comics being this visual medium, but then that's taken away. So your role as the author of a prose novel is to serve that up visually and also tell a story that is evocative of these characters, but not bogged down by continuity. I think some of the, you know, like we were talking about at the top of the show, I think the idea of continuity and history and the baggage that comes with some of comics is, you know, is something that's really daunting to readers, but that doesn't really apply to not when you pick up a novel, you want this compact singular thing. Most of the time, like obviously there's long running series and big fantasy or sci-fi series that are rooted and weighted down by story and, and narrative in, in a good way, like, you know, game of Thrones or any, uh, any number of series that have the lore, but, um, so I think the challenge for me was serving the longtime readers like me, like the author, uh, but also making it accessible to new readers who were pulled into the Spider-Man mythos by things like Spider-Verse or the Spider-Man movies and who specifically were keen because of Across the Spider-Verse and looking for more from Spider-Man 2099 and Miguel O'Hara. Though the Miguel in my novel, I think, is somewhat different from the Miguel in Across the Spider-Verse but not so different that if you re read the book, you feel lost. You know, uh, kind of touching on something else from the top of the show, Spider-Man yeah. 2099, Rick Leonardi creation. Love Rick Leonardi. Great artist, great, um, great costume designer. And that, that, um, that look is iconic. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've, you've also got a Daredevil novel on the horizon as part of Hyperion Books' Marvel Crime mm -hmm. uh, series. I was going to call it Marvel Crime Wave, but that doesn't, yeah. you know, phrasing. Uh, <laughs> uh, a wise Matt recently said, Daredevil fans can't have a good day unless Daredevil is having a bad day. Yeah. Uh, what is your favorite way someone has made Daredevil sad? Wow, I think that's kind of par, par for the course. If you're writing Daredevil, you have to make Matt sad. I was actually talking to Charles Soule about it at Terrificon when uh, we, we saw each other, we're old friends, and he's a great writer, obviously, of Star Wars and Daredevil and everything else he touches and a novelist. So we have a kind of a lot of overlap and we compare notes a lot. Um, but I think what we talked about, the, the benefit of the thing that is appealing about Matt Murdock and Daredevil is that he feels very three dimensional, dimensional, flawed, very wrought with problems. Um, but he also is a screw up in many ways, romantically in the way he um, sometimes approaches his profession as a superhero or, you know, vigilante. Um, but yeah, part of the game is torturing Matt Murdock. And that's that's what you do when you write Daredevil. I, I can't really say a lot because it's so early days uh, in the journey. But um, Daredevil is probably one of my favorite superheroes, period. Uh, one of the first characters I really latched onto for that very reason. He was very flawed and, and driven and also um wrought with problems um the i think the first daredevil issue i picked up was a lee weeks dg chichester story part of that mm. early run that led into eventually fall from grace by dan chichester and scott mcdaniel but you know lee weeks continues to be one of my favorite artists you know um 
but that was my first taste of daredevil the screw up and the uh catholic guilt superhero um so yeah i don't know if i answered your question but there we are <laughs> did i we talked about daredevil there you go yeah i mean what is it about what was it again i'm sorry I believe it was, what was your favorite way that someone had made Daredevil sad? My favorite way. I mean, look, the classic is uh, Born Again. Um, as you know, that that story, um, you know, is is literally superhero deconstruction 101. How to tear a character down and see if they'll get up again. And Nascenti, who I love her run and predated Dan Chichester's run. And she was really thrown in the mo into the most challenging role of having to, A, follow Frank Miller uh, and David Mazzucchelli, but also pick up the pieces after Miller and Mazzucchelli basically destroyed the character's tenet, you know, the tenets of the character and brought him back to ground zero and, and said, this is the new Daredevil or the new, the new era of the character after you push everything away, his law degree and all the things that kind of define the character for 30 odd years before that. You know, speak speaking of Anasenti, mm -hmm. I think that reminds me of my favorite way that someone has made Daredevil sad. He got beat up by a vacuum cleaner during yeah. Inferno. Yeah. 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 And yeah, that was wild. And yeah, Nascenti took the character in so many unexpected directions. Like, you know, not only Inferno, but just, you know, dealing with, I think there was an issue where he has to fight someone on a pig farm and it's very evocative and environment, you know, a lot of environmental themes, um, beautiful John Romita Jr. artwork, um, just a great run. And she's, she's so great with character. A Beer with the Devil is one of my favorite Daredevil stories. What are some of your favorite crime comics? So many good ones. Um, Stray Bullets, David Lapham is top up there. Um, just his art, you know, I'm a big fan of obviously that era of, you know, black and white indie comics, Love and Rockets and, and stuff like that. But I love long running, ongoing books like Stray Bullets and, and just that show the rawness of people, bad people doing bad things like that's noir in a nutshell. What happens when you paint someone into a corner because of their own past mistakes and you know, I, I love stories that have unhappy gray endings and Stray Bullets is rife with them. Um, another one that I really love is obviously Criminal, Brubaker and Sean Phillips. Um, you know, I think Love and Rockets is a, a book I love to, uh, you know, love passionately, probably my favorite comic in that the shorthand is it's punk rock Archie in many ways, at least the Jaime stuff, the Locust books. But and a lot of people don't think of it as a crime comic, and it's not really all the time. But if you read the death of Speedy Ortiz, that's the crime comic if you if <laughs> if there was ever was one um yeah i love um new burn by chris uh, chips darsky and uh, jacob phillips um and jacob phillips other work with chris condon um yeah those are the ones that come to mind criminal obviously like i said and um yeah i think those are pretty great they are <laughs> sorry i have to say i'm really tired after a convention so I, if i'm a little fried here we are no no you're good you're good uh and also I'm over caffeinated, but uh, do you, do you feel like you've found a rhythm at this point that works where you do, you know, a bunch of, of shorts or, or, or backups or, or whatever for different comics publishers while you're simultaneously working on novels? Like, yeah. do you have kind of a, a, an established flow for that? I would be lying if I said I did, but I love that I get to write these novels about things that I'm passionate about, whether it's work for hire stuff like Aranya, Spidey 2099, 
Poe Dameron or my own personal stuff like Secret Identity, Alter Ego, and, and the Pete Fernandez series. Um, and also getting to play with characters that I grew up on in comics like Spider-Man, um, the X-Men. I did a Polaris Infinity comic recently, the Avengers, the Question, Superman. The fact that I've written all these characters that I loved as a reader just blows my mind. Um, so I will always take time to do that and I'd love to do more obviously. Um, and I think there's more on the horizon and also to create new superheroes that kind of speak to me as a reader, as what I would have loved to have read as a child or a teen older comics reader, um, like the dusk or the black ghost or the awakened, which is basically a murder mystery on an Avengers justice society type team. Um, yeah, so I'm always, you know, if a story grabs me and appeals to me and and features either characters I've created or characters that I would love to have worked on or loved as a reader, then I'm always game to do it, whatever the medium. Yeah, as we've, you know, just as you've just listed, you know, you've written plenty of novels and plenty of comics. Yeah. You've also written novels either about comics, such as Secret Identity, or featuring comics characters. Mm-hmm. What what was the first time or what kind of first inspired you to, to mix your chocolate and your peanut butter there? Wow. That's yeah. That's a great metaphor in that um, for a long time, I tried, I kept things separate in that I was writing crime novels like the P Fernandez novels and doing comics on the side, like the black ghost and my Archie stuff. And then at one point as the P Fernandez series and the P Fernandez series, for those that don't know is a PI series set in my hometown of Miami featuring Pete Fernandez, a kind of a struggling uh, recovering alcoholic who is slowly muddling his way towards becoming a private eye, though I won't spoil anything about the series. That's kind of his arc, like what happens when you start investigating crimes and dealing with your own demons, but also then learn that this is the thing that I'm really good at, being a a detective. Um, But as that was ending, I really wanted to do something in the uh, standalone, which is just shorthand for a novel that stands on its own and is not part of a series. But um, obviously, Secret Identity is not a standalone, but at the time I thought it was. And I wanted to do a standalone in the vein of novels that I love, like the novels of Megan Abbott, who wrote books like Dare Me and um, uh, Give Me Your Hand, just novels that are crime novels, noir novels, but set in worlds that you wouldn't expect to see crimes happen, like cheerleading or science or gymnastics or dance. Um and for me, I was like, I really want to read a crime novel set in comics. But what is that? What, is, what does that look like? And um, I think the first comic novel that I remember reading, and, and one of the few that I think still exists, was Cavalier and Clay, which is a very obvious choice. Um, and the big takeaway from that for me was, wow, I felt really seen. Like someone's writing a novel about all the things I love, comics, comic book history. But I really wanted to read the comics themselves you know you're reading about the escapists and the creators of the escapists but i wanted to see the escapist comics in the novel which i know eventually happened like they had the escapist comics at dark horse um <clears throat> but i wanted them together so yeah that was kind of the big idea i wanted to write a comic book noir novel i was toying with the idea of having comic sequences in there and that is what set me off to the races but the why of it like why i wanted to do it is because i felt like crime was a comics was a really fertile backdrop for a crime novel in that, you know, I think the germ of that came to me while writing the first Pete novel where he is a journalist and he's working at a newspaper. And the one thing that people said to me about that novel, Silent City was, wow, you did a really good job evoking that newspaper feel, that industry, the 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 kind of shorthand of working in, in newspapers. And that stuck with me. And the idea of having comics in a novel stuck with me. Um, I didn't think I was going to be the guy that wrote that novel 
with comics in it, but it ended up working out. So that was cool. Um, speaking of the of the comics pages in, in Secret mm-hmm. Identity, uh, I did just want to give a quick shout out to uh, Sandy Jarrell, oh, yeah. who did the so Lakes good. art. He drew a Reggie series for Archie back in 2017. I think Todd Falco wrote it. Yeah. And it had the best little dachshund in it. And I, I call that out because I have two miniature doxies myself. And Vader, Reggie's dog, looks just like my eldest uh, Chewie. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, that was a great, great series. I love Tom. And, and Sandy, of course, is an old friend. And the thing with Sandy, not only is he a great artist, but he's a great lover of comic book history. So I knew he would evoke the style of the era without just, you know, aping Frank Miller or copying Gene Colan. It really felt like if you look at the Lynx books, I think, in my opinion, it feels like a comic that would have come out at that time. Uh, how much of that book involved historical research for you and how much of it was just creating that that jack kirby kid comics will break your heart vibe you know i think one of the things when i started doing secret identity and one of the funny things in retrospect was i thought okay i know comics i've read all the books i've read i felt like i'd read all the comic book history books and i was really i'm a historian in the way in that i love comic book history and the stories of the people that create the comics that i loved um but I was so sorely mistaken and it ended up becoming the most like journalistic project of my career um just funny to say career but I guess I have one having done this for so long but um I ended up talking to so many comic book creators and women that worked in comics just to a not only be accurate factually but to make sure that the experience I'm trying to evoke in the, in the, in the story is authentic. You know, I'm not a woman, I'm not a queer woman. I'm a straight man. And having, you know, with Carmen Valdez as the protagonist, I wanted to make sure that I spoke to people that shared that experience and could kind of help me make that story authentic as best as I could. Um, So I spoke to people like Louis Simonson, who obviously worked at uh, so many comic book companies as an editor, but also was an amazing writer. Um, I was just reading an interview about her new Jean Grey series, which I love the first issue. Um, and, you know, like Linda Fight, who created the cat, co-created, wrote the cat for Marvel Comics, which is very much tangentially, you know, very much connected to the links and the origins of the links. But it was the first kind of female starring superhero comic from Marvel written by a woman. And um, Laurie Sutton, who worked at the Comics Code, but also wrote for wrote comics for DC and other places. And also like, you know, luminaries like Paul Levitz and Jerry Conway and so many other people. Karen Berger was very helpful in the process. You know, just if it, you know, if it wasn't giving me interviews where I could pull context and anecdotes from, but but even just fact checking the story itself, like Stuart Moore read the book and he's an old friend that's worked in various roles as a writer and also an editor and, and, and a staffer in com- various comic book companies. He was great at just reading the manuscript and giving notes about what was actually happening in 1975 in comics. And Paul was also really great. And he told me very clearly, he's like, I'm not reading this to give you notes on the story. That's your thing. I'm giving you notes on whether this rings true for what was going on in 1975 in comics. And that was a huge debt that I will never be able to pay back. But, you know, that's what friends are for. And that was something I'm really grateful for. What was something that one of those people told you that surprised you? Uh, I wouldn't, I don't know if it surprised me, but it was very much like useful. And, you know, like Jerry Conway was great. And and I was so grateful. Like Jerry, I wouldn't, you know, now we're friends in the, after this journey, but it was someone that I knew of and we kind of chit-chatted a few times on Twitter. And I asked him, hey, can, would you, be up for looking at this chatting about this like he didn't read the manuscript but you know just talking about comics 
he gave me great anecdotes about, you know, where freelancers lived in 1975 because they were making so little money or, you know, um, Brian Cronin, who's a great comic book historian who writes for so many great places, um, just gave notes on what was actually released at given time. So if I referenced a comic, he he actually looked up and he was like, that wasn't out yet or was about to come out or came out at this time. Um, or this would be a great example here. You know, you're talking about Starlin's Captain Marvel and Adam Warlock, maybe throw this in. Um, so I didn't feel like what I brought to the table was lacking, but having this great support system of friends and creators and talents and historians augment that really, you know, the biggest compliment I've gotten from readers, especially comic book readers about the book is, wow, it really rings true. If you did your work, you did your homework. And that's, that's what you want to hear as a writer, that not only is the book good, fingers crossed, but the period that you're trying to evoke, the characters you're trying to write about, they ring true. And it that's that's the goal. That's, you know, the dream. I remember reading uh, Josie Reisman's uh, Stanley biography a couple years ago. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, obviously that gets, that ends with sort of the miasma of abuse from the end of his life. But the saddest yeah. part for me was when she interviewed Stan's brother, Larry, yeah. And goes to, you know, great lengths to describe this little shoebox apartment that this 90 something year old, you know, brother of an industry titan lived in. So when we got to the Doug Detmer stuff in the book, I was like, oh, my God, this is where it all ends up, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Josie did an amazing job with that book. She really hit a home run. I think, you know, I'm a fan. I, I gave I blurbed it and it was a huge, you know, I you know, I think we were writing in parallel and I, I I think I read her book just as I was finishing up Secret Identity, but it was certainly helpful. And I think it strengthened the acknowledgements that, you know, just that sense of the arc of comics, like it's it's big, big business now. It's part of pop culture. You know, I said this on a panel this weekend. Everyone knows comics now. There's an Ant-Man TV show. There's a Moon Knight TV show. There's a Peacemaker TV show. I mean, Ant-Man movie, sorry. But, you know, it's such a part of the texture of pop culture. But there was a time where comics was a niche thing. And a lot of the people that worked on comics when it was a niche thing are still lacking in the credit and benefit of what it's become. And that's just a sad part of the business in many ways. You pe you pepper in so many little Easter eggs in the book, you know, both references to stories that you've written, like Black Ghost in the Dust oh, yeah. <laughs> and last names of contemporaries like Rosenberg, Zdarsky, yeah. Morelli, etc. Mm -hmm. Has anyone ever reached out to you and been like, I did it. I caught all the references, you know, like, like, like they were Pokemon or something. <laughs> yeah, no, no one's got them all. You know, I mean, Rich Berger is a character. Obviously, that's not to Karen Berger. Um, uh, a lot of things in there are little hat tips. Um, but I don't know if anyone can catch them all because a lot of them are from different threads of life and things you know obviously there's a lot of nods to my own work because when i'm writing the book and i'm thinking well i need a name of like a street level vigilante type superhero and i i think well i've got one the black ghost or i need a you know superhero team i've got one the freedom alliance um and that just made it easier when i was cranking on the book and wanted to feel you know connected um but then there's also little nods to people that i worked with or things like that so I, you know if somebody does I'm, I'm still waiting for everyone to get them all or even references to like the Pete Fernandez series. There's two in there. People usually get one, but there's two. And that's part uh, of the fun. I mean, I love that. I love, you know, that's that's comics in a nutshell. Like when you start kind of really doing deep dives and, and finding connective tissue and continuity and things like that.
I, I read this, uh, I think it was sci-fi. It was an interview that referred to secret identity as you're born to, born to run, which begs the question to me, when you publish your born in the USA, do you make your author photo just a picture of your butt in jeans with a hat sticking out of the pocket? <laughs> I would never force anyone to look at that. But um, yeah, I think that's pretty apt. I think born to run, you know, look, not to compare myself to the boss. I love Springsteen. I would never presume that. But in terms of the arc of a career, like I've had a lot of people who've come up to me and said, wow, Secret Identity was such a was such a polished debut. And I have to say, nope, <laughs> it's actually my seventh novel. But it just goes to show you that everyone, there's no such thing as a quote unquote overnight success. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's always years and years of work, you know, blood, sweat and tears that goes into it, even if it were to have been my first novel, even it clearly was not. Um, I had the pleasure of interviewing David Baldacci, who is obviously a universally much more successful novelist than I am, like in terms of just sales and awareness and, and um, you know, Runway, he's written 45 novels, sold hundreds of thousands of millions of books. Um, but he said it too, like, you know, everyone looked at absolute power as this thing that kind of came out of nowhere and nobody saw it coming. But I was the one that was like juggling my day job and writing in, in, in the wee hours to just get it done for years before that, who wrote screenplays that nobody bought or read for years before that. So that's, I found that really reassuring. And I think if you are ever going to enter that field, you have to know you're going to have to do those hours and hours and hours of uncredited secret work that no one may never see. People might never see novels that drafts, you know, everyone's got the, you know, the novel that you keep in your desk drawer because it's just not good enough, but you have to go through that work to get to the good stuff. And now you're working on a sequel uh, coming out next year called Alter mm -hmm. Ego. Uh, what are you? What are you allowed, or 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 what what can you say about it? <laughs> um, I will give you the the big picture pitch. I'm calling it a follow up because it's in the same universe. It's a different protagonist. It's set in the modern day. And one thing my editor said that still resonates with me, and he said, you know, it's the other side of the coin that I think once you read Secret Identity and you have this experience, you need to see the other side of the coin in the modern day. And it's about this woman, Annie Bustamante, who is a film person. She works in film, kind of a Greta Gerwig type, maybe not nearly as successful in terms of Barbie, but like, you know, an independent filmmaker who's gotten some accolades, but has a background in comics. And she worked in comics as an artist for many years before leaving the industry. Um, and what pulled her into comics was a love for a particularly obscure character known as a legendary Lynx. That was the comic that pulled her in because she had that connection being a Cuban-American woman, seeing another woman, female comic creator, Cuban-American creator in the credits. Because if you remember in Secret Identity, Carmen is credited with writing an issue of the legendary Lynx, even though she wrote them all. She created the character, but no one knew it. And no one, even after the story, without spoiling too much, no one really knew that she was the one behind it. Um, so Annie is this acclaimed film person and has a history in comics. And then there's an announcement that this very obscure company is coming back. A film company is relaunching Triumph Comics as Triumph Entertainment and kick, kicking things off with a media adaptation of this very obscure character known as The Lynx in tandem with the comic book series. So there's this media and social media uproar saying, you know, we need, Annie has to do it because she's so identified such a lover of comics, but also such a lover of this character. And so she takes the gig, but with any dream gig, there's, you know, kind of the cobwebs that you didn't see, or, you know, the things in the dark corners that you didn't fully understand. And so as she gets deeper and deeper into this, this plum assignment that feels perfect for her, 
she realizes that there's a dark underbelly to it that she didn't anticipate. And it's also tied into so much. Um, the shorthand I use that I think catches people by surprise is that it's a novel about, you know, generational trauma and what happens when you, you know, and parenthood, you know, she's a mom, you know, I wanted to write about parenthood. I don't think a lot of protagonists in novels, crime novels, uh, unless it is about family specifically, uh, deal with stuff like that or grapple with the stuff that the churn of being a parent and the weight of being a parent, but also, you know, the generational trauma that comes with being a parent, like not making the mistakes that your own parents made and, and doing right by your kids, all wrapped up in in the idea of what happens when the characters we love are weighed down by negativity or things that you are uncomfortable with. Um so that's that's the big stuff. I don't want to give away too much because obviously it's a ways away and I'm still technically working on it in terms of revisions, but I, I also wanted it to feel very different from Secret Identity. I didn't want it I didn't want it to feel like Secret Identity, you know, like a lot of people, which is always flattering, said, you know, are you gonna do one in every decade? Like, hey, this is Secret Identity in the 70s, or are you gonna do one in the 80s or the 90s? Like, you know, 80s like dealing with Watchmen or 90s dealing with like uh image. And I just didn't want it. To, I didn't want it to feel that way. And I, I think the that idea is great. And I hope somebody does do that in some way. But um, I wanted this to feel like it stands alone, but also is in conversation with secret identity. And um, it feels not feel episodic, you know. Speaking of somewhat for, forgotten superhero universes and publishers, I mean, you spent a good amount of time at Archie. Yeah. Did you get a chance to play with uh, the Red Circle, the Mighty Crusaders characters over there? Oh, yeah, I did. I got to, I was the editor of Dark Circle, kind of the short-lived, uh, I guess, um, you know, uh, prestige TV approach to the characters is the word I'm looking for. Like Black Ghost by Dwayne Swarzynski, who's an old friend of mine, was a gritty, hard-boiled, edgy take. And, you know, The Shield by Adam Christopher and Chuck Wendig. And, so that was fun. I, I love those characters. I have a great fondness for them. And I always, you know, that dark circle thing didn't really resonate. I mean, in terms of sales, but I think there was a lot of critical acclaim. So I always, I'm always rooting for them. You have, do you have a favorite seemingly forgotten superhero line? Because there have been a lot of them, especially in the nineties. <laughs> I mean, I love uh, the Ultraverse characters. I think they're really fascinating. I um, I really studied a lot of the Atlas comics because I felt like Triumph was very much kind of like Atlas comics in many ways. Um, not a one-for-one -one translation, but I did do a lot of research into companies like that, like Atlas and Charlton and Quality. And um, just, I, I'm fascinated by the ones that just missed, you know, just maybe would have succeeded had some other dominoes fallen in different directions. But you know, that's how it goes. Atlas, was Atlas the one where Martin Goodman was trying to get revenge on Marvel? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of interesting <laughs> stuff. Lots of really talented creators. They didn't last more than two years. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, I also love the first comic stuff. I love Nexus and characters like that. You know, I'm I'm really intrigued by superhero comics that tried to exist outside of the big two ecosystem and. Not all, not many of them fail because it's really hard to compete when all you know the you know DC and Marvel take up a lot of the shelf space. But there's a lot of good stuff out there if you're willing to dig through quarter bins. Because what's also fascinating about that is just the rights issues with a lot of them, um, and the idea a lot of them are out of print, a lot of them are not digital. So it's really you know in this age of digital media, 
that, you know, where things can be taken away and forgotten or erased uh, with the push of a button, you really have to fight for the hard copies to remember that these things existed. Also, slightly in the future, you have uh, a short in the upcoming Marvel Zombies, Black, White, and Red. Yeah. Uh, how much leeway are you given with that when it comes to the more over-the-top aspects of the horror? Because some of those are pretty crazy. Some of the previous Marvel zombie stuff. Anyway. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I am a horror fan, but I'm much more of a psychological horror fan. And I think um, Tom Brevoort, who was initially pulling people together for this, uh, basically asked, like, write a story that's horrifying, but is also going to make break your heart and is, you know, is terrifying, but also heartbreaking. And so my big picture thought was like, what is this? How can I write the worst day? Basically, the worst day in Peter Parker's life. So buckle There's a lot up of competition that. on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was hard. As a lifelong Spider-Man fan, it is very hard to compete with that. And did you know beforehand that you were going to be in the same issue with Garth Ennis? Because when you're in anything with Garth Ennis and it's horror, this is the guy who created Crossed and Arseface. There's... There's a level there that you got. There's a kinda... gauntlet that's thrown down. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, I had no idea. I would have been supremely much more intimidated. But, um, you know, the story we came up with, I'm really proud of. Javi Fernandez did the artwork and he just knocked it out of the park. And the, just the color palette, because it's it's black and white, except for splashes of red, is, you know, it's really challenging to really succeed at. So he he really did great. And I was so lucky to be paired with him because anything that I stumbled at, he fixed. <laughs> And that's that's the joy of comics, like the the collaboration where the end result is so much I fear great greater than you expected if it works, which usually happens. You mentioned Star Wars earlier, and within the past couple of months, uh, you wrote the Rebellion one shot that was part of the 40th anniversary of Return yeah. of the Jedi series which featured poe dameron's parents mm -hmm. you had written the poe dameron no uh, novel not a few years back yeah uh, was that sort of why you were pulled in or was it you know sort of a general call like hey you got any ideas and you gravitated towards them because of your history with poe uh yes and no i think um danny kazem the editor um reached out and said, we'd, we'd love for you to do this. And we we want you to do a story that features Admiral Ak Akbar and Mon Mothma. And, you know, it's in the days leading up to the Battle of Endor. And, you know, obviously Kes Dameron and Shara Bey are integral to that moment. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to weave them into this? It's a very espionage story and it's very grounded and gritty, shocker. But it's, it's about uh, stopping an assassination attempt on Mon Mothma in the days leading up to the Battle of Endor because it's such a critical moment. And obviously the Empire is trying to get her off the board because they know this is coming in some way. Um, and then once Kess and, and Shara were, were in the mix, I thought, well, let me throw in a few other characters. So there's a lot of fun Easter eggs and it serves as a soft prequel to Poe Dameron Freefall. But if you read it on its own, it's a fun romp, I think, on its own. But if you read it and also read Freefall, you see a lot of connective tissue that maybe you weren't expecting. I was curious how much of the suggestion or the assignment had to do with Mon Mothma, who's a character who's pro who's been a part of Star Wars since Jedi 40 yeah. years ago, yeah. but whose profile since Andor 
has been much higher. Yeah, and I loved Andor, and so I I definitely wanted to echo that in some way. And I, I really wanted to show Mon Mothma as a powerful leader, as a powerful character that understands the gray area of politics, but also of war. They're in a time of war, and she understands that. But there's one line in there that I'm really proud of where she basically says, look, they're going to learn that even if they take me out, they cannot take out a movement. And, and that was really, it was fun to play with the idea of the rebellion and how powerful it is and how much a spiritual movement it is for them. We, we have touched on a lot of things uh, yeah, in the last hour, but yeah. uh, you know, is there anything else that you have coming up that we didn't mention uh, that, that you can talk about? <laughs> uh, yeah. Dark space. It's a sci-fi space opera novel. I'm writing with Rob Hart, who is the author of the warehouse and paradox hotel and a good friend of mine. Um, it's a, the shorthand we're using is John the Carre meets Star Trek. Um and it's a dual POV novel coming out from Blackstone late next year, uh, I think. I mean, you know, too many projects, no complaints, but it's just a lot of moving, spinning plates. But um, it's basically uh, about the Earth's first expedition outside of our known solar system. And uh, it's there's there's two POV characters. One is the pilot uh, on the ship that's heading out to to make first contact. The other one is a former kind of spy uh washed up spy uh you know mary timoney corin timoney mary timoney is the music artist <laughs> the character's named after corin timoney who is grappling with a conspiracy that affects the chances of this m very critical mission succeeding and she's based on the moon so it's it's fun it's a spy novel it's also got a lot of love for things like star wars and star trek and we had a blast writing it and so now we're in the position uh position of revising and tweaking it and it should be out next year uh any conventions or signings coming up i'll be at new york comic-con i'll be sharing a table with greg lockard who's a renowned editor and writer and good friend and um i'll also be doing motor city comic-con in detroit in november Penultimate question. What yeah. are you reading now? What am I reading? I just finished um, Missing White Woman, which is Kelly Garrett's next novel coming out um, next April, I believe. And in terms of comics, I'm doing a very massive like X-Men reread that I've just fallen into. I reread all the Claremont stuff a while back. That's, that's why I was going off so much earlier when we were talking about it, where I read everything Claremont did and I kind of stopped after he ended and then I picked it up recently. So I'm I'm into the Age of Apocalypse, which I realized I hadn't read originally because I was so miffed as a reader that they were rebooting <laughs> everything that I quit right after Legion Quest. And then I came back when I realized that they, you know, I was still like a very wide-eyed reader and I thought, okay, they're going to change everything. I think I was still spurned front by the Clone Saga where they brought, they said Ben Riley was the original Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of new stuff, because obviously that's not... Um, I'm enjoying the last few issues of Chip's Daredevil and his Batman. I'm really loving Tinny Howard's um, Harley Quinn and Catwoman as it leads into Gotham War. Um, I'm digging all the Fall of X stuff. I think it's, you know, I think Al Ewing is great. I love uh, X-Men Red. I'm really excited for Immortal Thor. Um, Matt Rosenberg's Wildcats has been a lot of fun. Um I know I'm saying writers, I should be crediting writers and artists like Steven Segovia is the artist on Wildcats, Yildere Sinar just did the last issue of X-Men Red. Um, what else? I think that's a lot of stuff. 
Yeah. It is a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> reading, reading up, as much as you're writing. And it yeah. was is not as the there was not the agonized pause that we often get when we ask that question. Oh, really? Good. I try oh. to have a few in my back pocket no matter what. <laughs> and it, we never we never treat it as a gotcha question, but we often get this response of like, uh I think yeah, I think creators, we always feel like we have to, you know. You know, tip our hat to every friend that we've ever met in the business, and it's not possible. <laughs> like, uh, um, anything else is on my have read shelf. Yeah, no, I think that was good. I'm proud of myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you you should be. You acquitted yourself uh, admirably. Yeah, <laughs> there there was not like the the five seconds of Kaiser Soze looking around the room for their uh, to read pile or just ran, you know random shit on the walls. But uh... yeah, I also really like uh, what Casey Gilly is doing with the Buffy stuff over at Boom. I, I love that show as a fan. I think she's really like kind of pushed it forward in a really cool way. So, I, you know, I will say with Age of Apocalypse, I do remember, you know, what a big deal was that like the books were, I'm going to use the phrase going away, even though that, you know, yeah, that's really it's what ended up happening. Now. Yeah, it happens all the time now. But at the time, it was so new to yeah. title everything, new number ones. Um, new world like earth shattering like they went back in time and killed professor x and i was like oh man this changes everything like i'm done but now reread reading it now for the first time it's really fascinating through the lens of all the time that's passed i i really would love to go back and see if there were a lot of letters of people just saying like they were gonna rage quit x-men like you know how every time they recast batman somebody yeah. digs out a letter where somebody was complaining about the casting of michael keaton who's yeah. you know looked on in retrospect as one of the greatest you know batman actors of all time Yeah, exactly yeah yeah that Find sort of thing moves, i guess <laughs> but alex this has been a fantastic time final question as we release you back into the world how can people follow you online and keep up with the many 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 things that you got going on well first off thanks so much for having me this was fun and i hope people enjoy the story in uh the cryptids issue number two, which, uh, which will be out soon. Um, where can people find me? Alexsegura.com. Um, I'm on Twitter or X or whatever it's called, uh, <laughs> as long as it lasts at, at Alex underscore Segura. Um, you can find me on in Instagram, Alex Segura Jr. And I'm also on blue sky and threads and posts and spoutable and whatever all those things are, uh, at Alex Segura. So right, Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, guys. It's been a treat. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcast, Battle of the Atom, and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at patreon.com slash comicsxf, where a dollar donation gets you a shout-out at the end of every episode, a $2 donation gets you early access to WMQ&A, and a shout-out at the end of every episode, a $3 donation gets you a sticker, early access, and a shout-out, a $5 donation gets you access to our monthly bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the comic appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom. A $25 donation that you request a primer, one of our custom reading guides for a series, character, or creator, and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Will Redmond, Tobias Carroll, Natalie Jordan, Mike Sagawa, Will Nevin, Liz Large, Asimov Fangirl, Carla Pacheco, and Robert Secundus. You're all special, and we love you. 
You can follow the podcast on Twitter at WMQ Comics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. You can also follow ComicsXF on Facebook and Blue Sky. And until next week, remember, in the 1970s, Stan Lee reportedly used to maintain a collection of toupees that made it appear as if he was growing his hair out. Excelsior! W-N-Q-A.